Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Thursday the 21st of March 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This episode we delve into the second chapter, Reform Coalition or Mass Strike, with panel stalwarts Lexi and Grant of Swampside Chats. If you'd like to help keep the episodes flowing, you too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month. We have 42 Patreons at the moment, so only 8 short of the magic number 50, which will mean the production of an extra Patreon-only podcast every month. So if that's your bag, just click on that there Patreon button. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel, and make sure to like and subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Mike McNair's Revolutionary Series. So we've got only three of us here today, but it's it's quality, not quantity. First of all, let's introduce Grant. Grant, how's it going? Hello, good to be here. Now, next to Lexi, how's it going? Hey, hey, broadcasting from Arizona, just outside of Phoenix. Now, we're going to do chapter two today. Did anybody want to say anything quick about chapter one before we go on? I think what we need to do is just read, what was it, the last paragraph? Because yes. we didn't quite get there. And for good reason, because this is actually where McNair sets up the central metric of the whole book, which is the what I, I like to call it the Marxist strategic spectrum. I, I don't know if he ever gives it a name. So this is the left, center, and right positions that we're going to be using throughout the whole podcast series, essentially. So boys, girls, and everyone in between, get your uh, notepads out. I think we should just read this paragraph. Around the turn of the 19th and 20th century, we can identify roughly three strategic hypotheses in the socialist movement. The right wing is traditionally identified with reference to Edward Bernstein's evolutionary socialism, though it in fact included various forms of pure trade unionist, quote, politics, ethical socialism, and so on. The center can be identified roughly with reference to Karl Kautsky's relatively late The Road to Power. The left can similarly be identified even more roughly and equally on the basis of a late text with Rosa Luxemburg's The Mass Strike, The Political Party, and The Trade Unions. Quote, even more roughly, because Luxemburg's position is in some respects intermediate between the Kautskyites and the core of the left. Both the content of the debate in the Second International and its limitations are essential if we are to understand modern strategic questions rather than merely repeating old errors. So he's going to split the essentially the strategic choices in three. On the right, we got the, I suppose you would call this social democrat right. In the center, you've got Kautsky and the kind of the strategy of patience, but revolutionary and then on the left, we have the mass strike and Luxembourg. So this is like the three main strategies of the Marxist left, we're saying, because it doesn't include so much the anarchist left. Is that, is that, is that correct? That's how I see it. He says that these are the strategies of the socialist movement. I, I like the picture that he paints in, in, I think it's the first chapter, where he's delineating Marxism proper. In his opinion, you know, what is political Marxism versus Bakunin on the left and LaSalle on the right to use the first international as a sort of metric or a first international as a source for a metric. So 
I call that like the socialist spectrum and I call this like the Marxist spectrum, but I'm quite annoying. So I don't think McNair makes that move. Well, I, I do think though that McNair, I hope at least that he would agree with you that this isn't the only spectrum in Marxism, that this is a very useful spectrum on electoral strategy, but that it isn't the end all be all. And, and perhaps I'd even say that the the left right language is a bit confusing. Yeah, I, I think he would completely, I, he would agree that this isn't the only spectrum. McNair is not a language first thinker. He's coming at this, trying to identify these three strategies that reappear in Marxism over and over and over again. And yeah, there are other relevant socialist strategies. And there's Karl Kautsky's metaphysical position in the middle somehow. Well, Karl Marx, in a way, has a metaphysical position in the middle between LaSalle and Bakunin. And there's a sort of, I don't know, golden mean that you keep seeing in Marxism, where you're constantly trying not to do the two dominant things. Right. Well, it's it's kind of like with the with the anarchists, you're always going to be addressing, you know, these big questions of social totality in these, quote unquote, centralizing ways or what have you. And they're not going to like that. And then with your kind of contemporary Leninist, you're not going to be in love with the state enough. So I think as a Marxist on the state, I think you often end up between a rock and a hard place. And that that is a fun, good position to be in, really. I think for the purposes of this book, the sort of red-brown alliance types, you know, and the communizers that don't accept any kind of transition alike... Those are non-Marxist politics for the purposes of this book. Those are LaSalle and Bakunin for the purposes of this book. So we've cleared that up. <laughs> no. So, yeah. So we're saying basically in the, he's saying in the second international, there was three main strands of strategy. Patience, kind of social democratic coalition becoming a part of the state. And on the other hand, the the general strike revolutionary what would you call it? Spontaneity yeah, of it's Luxembourg a and them. Autonomous model of revolution. Yeah. What 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 you'll see here is that each of these left, right, center positions each has a vision of how the revolution happens. So that's that's the link between the the autonomist vision of revolution and an abstentionist strategy, for instance, or a gradualist vision of revolution and a reform coalition strategy. Fair enough, but I don't know if the right you could say had revolutionary aims. Um, you you have to question the sincerity of it, maybe, but I do believe there were people who, who thought that the society Marx is describing could be brought about through reforms. I think they were wrong, but yeah, the idea I, that I, capitalism could gradually turn into socialism without a fundamental break. I don't think that makes you not a communist. I just think that's incorrect. I, and I think that's one of the best things about laying it out like this is that we can accept that there are people that do kind of believe in communism, but have this, you know, frankly, you know, revisionist strategy of getting there. And Bernstein is, is kind of one of these people, you know what I mean? It is, you know, it is said that he basically abandons all goals of classless society, but I think he's very useful if you want to abandon goals of classless society. But I don't think he did. How many of these people do you think that tack towards the reformist points of view 
today in our society are revolutionary. I think fewer than then. I think like, that one of the reasons you could have a a kind of right-wing Marxism was the those kind of tethers to a, a real mass movement that existed at the time would do some kind of work on the intellectual things being produced. Tom's getting at something interesting here that I've been thinking about for a while. A right Marxist position, as spelled out as being like derived from the Second International here, tends to collapse into the abandonment of the idea of classless society. And it sort of retains this sort of like idea of, you know, workers politics. But, you know, in general, yeah, there is a drift from this right Marxist position to like a, I don't know, an ultra right Marxist position, maybe if we're going to be charitable. The, the thing I'd say about that is that there's a parallel move on the left. Like if you're an abstentionist, there's this, there's a text by Otto Rule, one of these like German left comms, I think he kind of flirted with national unity at, at the wrong time. So he's marked with uh, the Nazi friendly brush a little bit. But he wrote a pamphlet called The Revolution is, is Not a Party Affair, where he basically argues that if you're an abstentionist, there's no point in having a party. So there's a parallel move from like a, a left Marxist position to what you might call an ultra left Marxist position. It just strikes me that when we think about, say, the people that I know in my own life or the people who I follow politically, not because I agree with them, but I just follow them, say, and that are, say, of the right of this, what we're going to talk about today. I think that the vast majority of those in today's world aren't revolutionary socialists. The vast majority are lefty careerists. That's how I would describe them. And I expect most of them to drift further right as they get older. You can make a case that the reform way could be a, a, a step to revolution. But I, I do think that it, by definition, will attract all of the worst, most right-drifting Marxists. I would, though, add that feeling of, you know, when I look at this really closely, I'm not sure these people are revolutionary socialists. I think you can find that across this spectrum in people who are far left as well. I, I think that there is, you know, like Lexi was saying, the kind of communization abandonment of activity altogether. Or in, in general, I think that you can be non-revolutionary or you can be non-revolutionary in the way you were expressing, Tom, and be aligned with any of these three revolutionary strategies. People on the far left can be just yeah. as opportunistic that people in the Marxist center, people who who hold to a McNair line on, because McNair's line is ultimately that you can, you can enter the political sphere antagonistically and have a troll party. And I mean, he, he says more than that, I guess, but, but that, that basically, I think that you could have that position and be a good Marxist, and you could also have that position and be a bad Marxist. And that applies to maybe all three of these, less so to being a reformist. But, but there's some ideological blurring that I think happens that, that right. the left-right language here also makes confusing. Well, the, the thing that I'd like to say is that the reason that it's, it's necessary to make this argument is that historically... Yeah, the dominant Marxist tradition agrees. What right Marxism? Get the fuck out of here. All of you are not communists. We are splitting from you. Sort of the meaning of Lenin, you know, or what one would hope 
Lenin could mean, like in general, is that, look, we're splitting from the this corrupt, parasitic, nationalist, loyalist right. Those, they are not sincere communists. They could never be. But the problem is, is that you sort of cut yourself off from the truth about the Marxist tradition. The truth about the Marxist tradition is that because of Marx and Engels' theory of the state, they tended to see democratic republics, the ones that, you know, <laughs> Grant and I are living in right now, or, or even in the UK, you know, it's not even a, it's not even really a democratic republic, but like a constitutional monarchy. And Marx and Engels were open to the idea that this, you know, a communist economic revolution could happen peacefully in these places. So it's, there's a, yeah. there's a, there's a theoretical lineage going back to Marx and Engels that is, it is defensible even if it's, it seems historically absurd that in order to just put it all put it all on paper i don't think it it's too useful to block these people out of marxism i think it's more useful to make your appeal to them by including them but just spelling out the, the fine point details of why they're wrong and why how this is going to lead away from communist revolution fair enough like i agree that you can get the you know, the worst types in all different strands but I, I, I just I feel like there's a predominant amount of people in this right socialist or a right Marxist strand, more so than than the others, will tend to move to the right. There's one more thing that's before this that I think is sort of relevant that yep. McNair acknowledges that um, it's the last paragraph on on the first page on page uh, 38. These tendencies drew on debates which had already begun. The general strike strategy of the left was a variant form of positions which had already been argued by the Bakuninists in the 1870s and were still maintained by anarcho-syndicalists. The policy of the right had indirect roots in the Lasallians' policy of demanding that the German imperial state support the workers against the capitalists. Its more immediate root was the successful coalition policy of SPDA regional leaders in southern Germany, which Engels criticized in the peasant question in France and Germany. Yeah, it's it's not it's not even that you know these Marxist positions tend to drift towards their non-Marxist variants. That's where they're from. Okay, let's let's start, let's have a go at reading what the what is the right reform versus utopianism. The underlying common idea of the right wing of the movement was that the practical task of the movement was to fight for reforms in the interests of the working class. In order to win these reforms, it was necessary to make coalitions with other tendencies which were willing to ally with the workers' movement. And in order to make coalitions, it was necessary in the first place to be willing to take governmental office. It was by creating a coalition government that the possibility really arose of legislating in the interests of the working class, as well of administrative measures, creating social security systems, etc., Secondly, it was necessary to be willing to make substantial political compromises. Thus, Engels in The Peasant Question polemicised against Volmar's programmatic concessions to the peasantry in relation to positive subsidies for family farming and in relation to trade union issues affecting agricultural labourers employed by small farmers. OK, so he's basically here saying that if you want to actually make change in society that will benefit the left, you've got to enter government. And if you enter government, you're going to have to compromise. And I think the most devastating consequence of this is the next paragraph. So the largest compromise, but from the point of the view of the right, the smallest, will be for the Workers' Party to abandon its illusory and futile revolutionism 
and with it, equally illusory Marxist claims about crisis and the notion that an economic downswing reforms as concessions made to the working class would tend to be taken back unless the working class took political power into its own hand. Okay, so if you go for a coalition and you go for government, you, you become a part of the establishment, in essence. And when that economy swings back down, you're going to become the new hated administrators of capital. Exactly. And it, it's inevitable. Capitalism is crisis, fallen rate of profit, blah, blah, blah. It's going to happen. He he points out that, especially in, in uh, the form that Bernstein packages it in, that this is this usually comes with a larger critique of Marxist theory. Because you're right, if you believe in Marxist economics, if you think that's a description of capitalism, this couldn't possibly work, right? Because you would take responsibility for a government that would go into crisis and yada, yada, for all the reasons Tom said. But if you think the scientific approach of Marx and Engels was, as he says here, it was diverted by the residual Hegelianism and that you need to you know, make some adjustments to their predictions and to their theories. And you know, at the time, if you were in Germany, I think uh, Max Weber wrote about this, that you know, it seems like Marx was wrong about these predictions perfectly sincere scientific socialists were starting to question whether the trends that he was predicting wouldn't wouldn't pan out in that doom and gloom way and maybe capitalism was more stable than he thought there is a similar wave in the time that we were born in right-wing marxism comes with a package of a critique of marxism this is actually a lot of where the beginnings of the critique of hegelianism in marxism come from which is why a lot of people are just suspicious of any critique of Hegelianism. Right. I, I think that here, too, this, this is really interesting about the state. The claim that economic downswing would produce attacks on concessions already made could be perfectly well conceded by rightists as true of the bourgeoisie. But the argument that this was also true of the state depended on the claim that the state was a class instrument in the hands of the bourgeoisie and was thus intertwined with revolutionism. It it just no, I, seems like really interesting to say that you can't just take the state administration as is, that it is a bourgeois relation in a certain sense, not just a neutral party controlled by the bourgeoisie. Yeah, I think that's important. Like he makes a distinction there between it's not like you get control of the state and the economic relations don't matter. It's just politics. No, it's it's fundamentally economics first. That's should be thinking about as materialists and it's not like you can control the state and you can defend the working class in the times of crisis maybe to some extent but you're also going to be the one that's going to drive them down at the same time it's inevitable right you're you're becoming a part of the political management of the mode of production and that is about continuing the stability of that mode of production the market market recovery is when you're making government reform, you're not going to be legislating on behalf of the working class. As we go through the book, McNair always breaks things up into the positive and negative claim. Lexi. Oh, yeah. I love that. Has an, has an orgasm every time it's true. she mentions this. So let's have a look here about what the positive. So the positive claim is essentially that programmatic concessions can win real reforms. Their negative claim is revolution is unrealistic, worthless and illusory. Let's have a look. So the right positive claim, you know, but how they can go and get reforms and make the, the working class life a bit better. 
And that's the yeah. way you should go about it. I, I like this little bit here. He talked about the British Labour Party after 1945. It may then, like the British Labour Party after 1945, become a party which is in form a workers' party capable of forming a government on its own. But it is in reality, in itself, a coalition between advocates of the independent political representation of the working class on the one hand and liberal or nationalist state reformers and political careerists on the other. To use Lenin's very slippery expression, a bourgeois workers' party. You know, and I think that's the story of the 20th century in Europe, yeah. these type of parties. Straight up and down. McNair argues that the SPD from its roots was one of these. Does he? So, yes. And, and that he says essentially that the split, the, the split away from the Second International was justified on precisely this basis. He does take that from Lenin. I didn't get that. Like, was Kautsky not was SPD not like basically the party of Kautsky and that strat and, and that and that strategy? Well, he has a critique of the historical center that has a lot of teeth and is inspired a lot by the 1914 through 1918 Lenin when he was lined up with Luxembourg and Panikuk and Karl Radek, where they're disgusted by the way that SPD capitulated in World War One and are sort of like, no, they have to break from that. I think Luxembourg calls it a stinking corpse of social democracy in order to have a real communist politic. That is where people start using the distinction of communist as opposed to socialist again, which isn't the first time that happens in Marxist history. So I have a question for you then. Was it not the case that the party... SPD had basically they weren't radical enough to say no to the empire the imperial war they, they couldn't carry the base you know the actual historical ins and outs probably not the person to ask but as far as McNair goes and I think he states this towards the beginning I think he stated in, in the last chapter he's talking about the German SPDs and later the second internationals prioritizing of unity of the movement above all else right he will go on to argue that this d gives the right wing a de facto veto on yeah. just about anything because it's more powerful because it's lined up with the state and capital. If you let them in, they will dominate you. And there's sort of an interesting point in there about the way, you know, you would, you would think, okay, we, yes, but we have to include these people because we, we need to rebuild the left, like, and, and the, the obsession with rebuilding the left as the purpose of socialism rather than advancing social interests is really distorting here as well. And would encourage you to bring in these right wing folks who are going to pervert your movement. One, one thing I, I just, uh, as a point of interest, it's not like Kautsky wanted to to support the war. Am I am I correct in stating that? That's not true. Yeah, he 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 just yeah. wanted things to. He wanted the socialist, the left, to stay together. You know, and he prioritized that over the over the split. And yeah, it's over that that gives him the reputation for being pro-war, although he never was. I guess what gives him the reputation for being pro-war then is that Lenin, Lenin today is not so much a thinker we rely on, but a puppet we stick our hand up the bottom of. <laughs> and say whatever political point we want. Well, it's it's not it's not hard to make Lenin say this, considering how he froths at the mouth about it. So, <laughs> are, are are we are we specifically talking about fisting when we talk about this now? Are we fisting <laughs> Lenin? Is that what's going we're, on? We're we're communists. <laughs> we're we're talking about fisting as liberatory praxis. There is some kind of like scary like 
queer theory paper that makes this idea of like fisting as some kind of crazy metaphysical liberatory practice. This is well, all reminds. Zizek says that it's the most Edenic form of uh, sexual congress. I think he's. Um, I think. I think he's like riffing off of something else that already exists. But uh, uh, that's, that's in, in, in all in in all matters pertaining to your question, Tom, I plead the fifth. Did you say hedonic or what word did you e- e- use there? Edenic. Like what the uh, hell is that? Adjective form of like the Garden of Eden. Okay. Yeah. So so like primal <laughs> and I guess like sort of at the at the origins of hum- humanity and sexuality. Oh. It's more at the origins than PIV. Okay, whatever. That would be uh, that's what, an interesting I, I like it. interesting point to make. Yeah. What, what the like hell it. is PIV? You know what PIV is, Tom. I don't. Come on! All right, all right, no, 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 no. This is this is really fun. This is <laughs> a good on. moment in le- in left podcasting history. It means penis in vagina. Oh my god! <laughs> they actually abbreviated that. My god! Seriously, what is wrong with people under the age of thirty? Like, <laughs> why the fuck? Well, I guess it's just. I think it, makes, it actually makes that. a good point. They have all this non-PIV sex. What the hell's the matter with them? PIV. I guess what what I think the the term comes out of is is the fact that um, <laughs> I just want to know what HIV is. China. Yeah, well, that, there we go. We're 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 back to fisting. But but I actually think the term <laughs> PIV is is good to denormalize to denormalize the idea that 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 is the end all be all of every sexual encounter and things of that nature. I mean, I quite agree. I'm going to read the first sentence of this section now. It should be said right away that the positive claim of the right wing is true to the extent that we are willing to treat partial gains for particular groups of workers, workers in Britain or workers in industry or in particular industries, etc., as gains for the working class as a whole. This does not, in fact, depend on the Workers' Party being a minority party and hence in need of formal coalitions. If the Workers' Party presents itself purely as a party of reform, it will also win members and voters from the existing parties of reform. And then it slides into the description of the British Labour Party, which must seem all very hazy after all the fisting and PIV. You just wanted to change the topic there. I didn't get anything good out of that. (laughs) Um, You really think I don't want to talk about fisting? Down with PIV, I say. Okay, this point here, I think, is... Grant, we did it. We did it. We we, we 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 queered from alpha to omega, basically. Yeah. It didn't take too much, let's be honest. Let's right. Okay, so this wait, point wait, here. Wait, wait. Before we move on, one more thing. Okay. One more thing. If we're going to talk about this, I just want our viewers to know that if you've ever thought of uh, switching teams for a celebrity, you're queer. Welcome. Welcome to the club. Like, it's totally fine. You're in. No worries. Anyway, go on. All right. Switching team for a celebrity, like a particular celebrity, you'd say. If there's if there's with, a celebrity, if there's a celeb that you would go homo for, then you have every right to claim queer identity. My friend used to always <laughs> say that if he had to choose one, it'd always be Sean Connery. He said he he liked Sean Connery, and <laughs> it was very weird. <laughs> well, like, Sean Connery was about seventy-five at the time. You're like going, of all the men in the world. <laughs> Does he mean like Bond, Sean Connery, or like Finding Forrester, Sean Connery? We should move the fuck on. I, I love in Hunt for Red October. You know, some of these instruments are sensitive to bullets. <laughs> Did you say bullets or bollocks? This is a good point. I think that what gets to some people's disenfranchisement 
with the leftist you know, sock dem approach. The reform policy is therefore a policy for the growth and increase of power of the state and increased state taxation, as the conservative press puts it, for the nanny state. Okay, so and he, and he goes on to say, the internal problem is that working class people are no more fond of being in, in perpetual parental leading reins from the state than the middle classes. The aim of emancipation of the working class is an aspiration to collective and individual freedom. Like, I think this is a major point, like that all of these like sock dems that have done good things in England and Scandinavia and all that, they, they still have, they still don't give you freedom. They still don't give you the sense of freedom that you were in control of your own life, your of your production, of your working life. You know, when it comes down to it, there's some redistribution and you, you've got a bureaucracy you still got to deal with. And you don't have any sense of freedom in where you work and when you interact with the state. And usually they're oppressive bodies. And I think that's getting to something really real that's wrong with this right Marxist approach. Amen. Yeah. Grant, I imagine this tickles you quite a bit because, yeah, this is all about management. This is all about manipulation or, I don't know, there was a book that came out within like the last 10, 20 years by some behavioral economists called Nudge, where they talk about how to influence people's behavior, essentially without them knowing it by arranging things. And it was almost like a nice way of being like a Foucauldian, like totalitarian. There's something really fundamental to Marxism in this problem. I agree with you, Tom, and I agree with you, Lexi, that there's, there's something here about just this endless management of social antagonisms by the state, really. Just this endless deference of capitalism's social antagonisms to the nanny state. I mean, he says, you know, it's a conservative point, but he concedes it nonetheless for a reason, I think. I frankly think that this would apply on a larger scale in a way is that, um, you know, health changes don't register when you're only not drinking the big soda cup because it is banned. You know, and I think that that applies all the way to to socialization policy. It's interesting you mentioned that that book Nudge, Lexi, because that was a real big one in Britain. The Tory party took it on and it was like supposed to be the overriding philosophy of their approach to essentially cuts and stuff like that. Well, we get to get on to the negative claim. So here, McNair talks about this concept of the nation state as essentially plays a role like a like a firm in the world market that each country is forced to essentially compete with other countries to gain access to surplus or whatever. And he, 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 he kind of sums it up here. He says, to form a government within this framework, therefore necessarily commits the participants to manage the interests of the nation state and global competition. And he goes on to mention about how basically, you know, in the developed world, it essentially leads to a kind of an imperialist attitude. Because when things go wrong, and if you're going to try and keep things good for your own workers, who's going to pay for it? And in essence, he says here, capitals are able to externalize the cost of downswing onto weaker states and the firms, the landlords and petty producers, et cetera, associated with these states. Competition on the world market is thus military, political, economic. Like it's very hard to deny that. 
yeah, he essentially calls this a predictive failure on on the the, the framework of the reformists. They don't fundamentally understand that the international state system is the bourgeois order. That would be the thing to overcome. And so by putting yourself in this framework, you're necessarily doing sectional working class politics, even if you represent the entire electoral majority 100%. I was just going to say, it's interesting to note, for example, an example of this at the moment in the UK was Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party were supposedly against Trident being renewed. That's the nuclear submarine thing. I mean, it's like a trillion pounds or something crazy they spend on it. And they ended up backing down on that. And it was like they haven't. It was like one of the first things that they had that actually really would go against the interests of the kind of imperial state. They quietly did not go against that. And it's like that's, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's is as left as you can get in the Labour Party. And they still can't even get something like that in there. They can't denuclearize. Right. I mean, it's just the political class internals of it. You need approval to make certain policy. Like you either need a social base or the political class has to be willing to go along with it. And a lot of times the left tries to fix things with neither. But I, I wanted to quote something in the next paragraph He's talking about the policy of reform. He says, the policy of reform through coalition governments thus entails, A, the displacement of the downswing of the business cycle onto the weaker states and their firms and populations, and B, the displacement of the social polarization which capitalism produces onto polarization between nations. I I think that B is something you see on the Stalinist, Maoist kind of left Mm -hmm just constantly. The conflict between classes has essentially been replaced by the conflict between nations for these people. Explicitly with Mao. For Mao, there's the the proletarian nation. I want to continue the paragraph. On the one hand, this gives the reformists negative claims their credibility. Reforms are actually achieved and social polarization is reduced in the successful states. On the other, the reformists necessarily commit themselves to sustaining and managing an imperial military force. That you can see where Lenin does have an impact on McNair's thinking, even if Lenin ends up being inconsistent and builds. Pers- it be- and I, I think your invocation of like uh, Stalinist and Maoist makes perfect sense. But of course, that's precisely the part of Lenin's ideological children that is so disturbing is that some of these trenchant critiques that McNair is. Yeah, McNair's getting that from Lenin and uh, also from um, the Goethe program, of course. So, like, definitely there is this, you know, like, if we look at the tendency within capitalism so far, before capitalism came along, the disparity between the wealth of the rich nations in the West, say, go back to 1400 AD and say a poor African country or a poor Asian country or South American, there was not much of a distance, you know, if we were to look at GDP per capita or whatever you wanted to measure it as the life expectancy, the quality of life, you know, maybe there was like a two to one ratio or something, but now it's like the GDP between say Botswana and the U S is off the scale. It's probably nearly like a hundred to one ratio, you know, GDP per head. And we see that it's an inevitability of this kind of need to protect the, the home to over exploit the fire abroad. I guess what I was trying to get at towards the end of that is, um, yeah, a national framework commits you to the hierarchy of nation states. 
You want to be on the bottom or, or do you not want to be on the bottom? Let's not go down this fisting route again. So this, I found is an interesting character. Every so often in this, he'll throw in a bit of hardcore economics, which is kind of interesting. In the same way, the global downswing must end in the destruction of the global money and property claims of the declining world hegemon state. Britain in 1914 to 45, the US at some point in the coming century, in its ultimately futile efforts to put off this result, the declining world hegemon state must respond by an increased exploitation of its financial claims and its military dominance, as Britain did in the late 19th century and as the US is doing now. And he then he goes on to say, the deferred and transposed business cycle can only overcome this problem by ending in war. That's I'm curious of... if the United States is going to step up its military power during the 21st century, or if it's going to turn to increased isolationism. I, I'm, I think that's an interesting claim to make. And I think America's military dominance, I think that its power this century either way is going to rest on that. And that the United States, even as its economic power declines, is going to you know, barring some overthrow in the mode of production or what have you, that that it could have a kind of steady decline because of its military power. But I think that would, you know, keeping up with the latest technology, but more surgical interventions is what I think even the American political class, out of practicality, not the kindness of their hearts, may go for. Yeah, like I, I'm skeptical of this claim that it has to end in war. Like I know I've read some research on the Roman Empire when it split from the the Byzantine wing and the the Italian wing, say the Roman wing, that the Italian side just completely collapsed. But the Byzantine wing that kept going for mm-hmm. ages, and yes. they didn't like they didn't collapse. This idea that it's inevitable they go to war, it's it's much more likely that there are like you know, there is a series of options and one of them is this war, but it's hard to imagine the US, like the actual structure of of the society is different now than it was in 1914. You've got nuclear bombs, you know, you can't go to war with your your biggest enemy. It's just, it's just a no-no, no one can do it. So maybe they can screw up, but it seems much more likely to me is that what'll end up happening is slowly the US currency hegemony will drop, the dollar will drop, and they will un- be unable to support over time their military, and it'll end up just being scaled back. I think it's I most think, likely. I think Karl Kautsky has a theory. I, I believe it's Kautsky. Forgive me if it's not. Something along the lines of like hyper-imperialism or something where it's it kind of reminds me of like the globalization theorists around the 2000s. Basically like war is over. We've entered this era of economic cooperation between states and that's how these conflicts will be deferred it always struck me as an obvious ideological ploy but hearing what everyone's saying here it is likely that it's it's going to be harder and harder yeah i mean it's true it's just true that it's harder and harder for the u.s as an empire to put boots on the ground but i I don't think that means it's going to stop it is less and less a way of managing Right, but it's it's about a change to surgical, precise kinds of intervention and and the need to appear like these interventions are apolitical and and kind of limited. I'm going to say that's a symptom of the decadence of the empire, and they know how fragile things are. They don't want to do that 
obvious. I, I don't think there's that social solidity behind the capitalist states that would allow them to like, you know, if they tried to do World War One again tomorrow, I don't think you would have people signing up. And I think that has to do the Iraq war tomorrow. You couldn't even do that. It's it's interesting. Uh, there's a great economist. He's a kind of a, a Marxian economist called Dr. Michael Hudson. I don't know if you guys know him. He's from that Kansas State University. He's he wrote a great book called Super Imperialism on America's dropping the gold standard. But he's been traveling around like to Russia, speaking in Russia and speaking in in China and a lot of these places, talking about like how the U.S. currency operates and talking to policymakers. And he's been saying we see the emergence in the last five, 10 years that the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians and a lot of these nations together are doing essentially barter deals whereby Russia might give China a whole load of oil and gas and China will, will say, build them high speed trains and that they're not going through the dollar. The actual amount of the percentage of transactions that are actually going on in the periphery and the dollar is dropping. Not saying that the dollar is going to hyperinflate or anything, but it's going to going to see a weakening on the dollar. And I think that he's got some excellent analysis there. But like, so I don't agree that it inevitably falls into war like it would have done in 1914. That's just inconceivable. Like the, the, the idea that like an Irish person will go to war with uh, an Italian now is completely completely absurd mm. even a, even a british think, person and a, and a german that's absurd i think mcnair's blind spot really often mm. is mass politics and treating everything as if mass politics commands the same social base that it did during the 20th century if you started out with mcnair's revolutionary strategy in your hands in the 1950s I think you would have a much better chance of building a workers' party out of it than than you do today. In general, his perspective seems to assume a solidity to the bourgeoisie's like control over people that is dynamic in but, capitalism. But I even think he misses some structural changes, like the idea of something silly, like being able to go on holidays to Spain if you're in the UK, or to go to holidays to Germany. It changes people's idea of what a German or a Spanish person is. But like even a structural change, like the ability for cheap air flight and, the, and for uh, atom bombs, it structurally changes the pathways that history can take that we can't just look back at 1914 and say, oh, this is what's going to happen. So I think there's a weakness in the book in that respect. Yeah, it just it feels like we're we're kind of going through this. And I guess Revolutionary Strategy was written in 2008 or something like that. I feel like this was slightly less obvious then. But I feel like we are go we are at the end of this. We're going through this long economic technological shift where the political architecture is, is being undone. I don't know that McNair sees that we are in a paradigm shifting moment. And it feels like you know, the mistake of reading revolutionary strategy would be to try to redo the 20th century, but better. Yeah, I think McNair, I think, I think you're right about the substance of McNair's analysis more generally. I think for the task that he sets out for himself, that it's quite good to try to do this accumulated historical record. But oh, yeah. I think this 
is an that's the thing. This is an incredibly valuable book. And like I said before, I think if you, and this is something Joe has has said to me before, if you put this in the hands of somebody in the 1940s, 1950s, you would be able to do something with McNairism in the mid 20th century much easier than you would now. I would agree with you that this this spectrum that he establishes in this chapter is helpful. And I, I guess I just see where in his analysis of nation states and all of that, this, this all starts to come out, I think, with, yeah. with opinions about the United States. You know, if, if you think that World War Three is going to happen because World War One happened, you know, you know, if you if you uh, don't, I hear you. Yeah. Global, it, if you don't see that globalization happened, like Tom was saying, stuff like yeah. that. Well, in, in my personal interactions with McNair, which I think was one email exchange, he made a point of saying he knew nothing about the United States. I don't think that's true, but I think what you're saying here bears out that that you can't really do induction about where the United States is going based on this, or Trump is going to throw us all for a loop and shit is going down. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>